Welcome to the Church of Rocky Peaks downloadable messages and podcast. Well, good morning. Hey, it's starting to feel like Christmas around here, and it? it's like getting cold outside. Awesome. Have to wait till December, but it's finally here. So, uh, so good to have you here. My name is uh, Pastor Mike, and if this is your very first time to uh, Rocky Peak, we're so glad you're here with us. We're actually finishing up a series today on spiritual warfare. And inside of your bulletin, the weekend program, there's a white message note sheet. Encourage you to uh, take that out, and you can follow along uh, in the service. Okay, and if we could get those back doors closed too, that would be great. <laughs> I like we are all in the cry room at the moment, right? <laughs> right, great. Okay, let's uh, let's pray, and then uh, we'll jump right in. Father, we're just so thankful for this day. Thankful for what you're doing in our lives. Thankful for what you've been teaching us in this series about warfare, about this war that's been going on since the very beginning of time, God, that we are all involved in. And so we pray today as we we come and talk in some ways about the most important topic, how do we take our stand against this enemy who's out to destroy us? We pray that you'd give us wisdom and insight, new steps that we can take and and show us what it takes to win in this battle. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, it was one of the most famous stories or famous uh, uh, battles in the history of the world. One of the most famous last stands. It happened in 480 B.C. The Persian Empire was on the move. In fact, it was taking over the, the world. It was the largest empire uh, that it ever, the world had ever seen. King Xerxes is on the throne. You might recognize that name from the Queen Esther in the Bible. Same, same guy. And uh, he had established this huge empire that is, it went all the way from India all the way through Iran and Iraq, over to Palestine, down to Egypt, uh, North Africa, and then up to Turkey. But he was hungry for more, and he wanted to rule uh, Europe as well. And the one big obstacle that was in his way was the nation of Greece, this pesky little uh, area of city-states who were bent on this new idea called freedom and democracy. And so he was going to have to take them out, and so he established this huge army. I mean, it was the biggest army the world had ever seen to that point. Ancient or historians will disagree over exactly the size of the army. According to the ancient uh, Greek uh, historian writing at the time, who has very detailed reports, he says that the army was made up of two and a half million warriors, made up of Persians in all the areas that they'd conquered. According to modern day historians who say, oh, we can't even buy that, that's too big a number, we're not sure that's true, that some of the best modern estimates is probably at least a quarter of a million, 250,000 warriors, but either way, I mean, it's huge, it's a huge army. And they're coming all the way from Persia, they're marching towards Greece, and Greece gets word of it, and so they decide to have this kind of uh, conference, and they get together a bunch of their city-states, and they form this loose confederation to defend themselves. They decide that they will send 10,000 warriors, which is not a whole lot when you're facing that many, but they're going to send 10,000 warriors to battle. And they ask the king of Sparta, of course, Sparta, the, the kids, the boys are raised from youth to be warriors, and they ask the king of Sparta, King Leonidas, will you, will you lead this uh, battle? And, and so he handpicks 300 of his Spartan warriors, and they put together the, the allied troops of 10,000, and they, they move to this little narrow stretch of land called Thermopylae. It's on the coast of Greece. It's, uh, on the one side, there are huge cliffs. On the other side is the Aegean Sea. And because of that, the road narrows down there. It becomes very narrow through this pass. And so only one chariot can get through at a time at the start of the pass. In the widest part of the pass, it's only the size of a width of a, uh, the length of a football field, 100 yards. 
And so their strategy was this would be the very best place to meet the Persians with their massive troops because the Persians won't be able to outflank them and circle them. They'll have to hit them head on. And still at the same time, they knew this is a suicide mission. I mean, they're not coming home from this mission. In fact, King Leonides, when he's hand-selected his 300 Spartan warriors, one of the requirements was that they had to have a, a son already. It didn't matter if he was one month old or 20 years old. But he had to have a son because they knew they weren't coming back. He wanted their whole line to, they didn't want their family line to be destroyed. And so the 10,000 troops, they march to Thermopylae. They take their stand. The Persians move into uh, battle position. Huge troops. King Xerxes, he's sitting on a throne up on top of the cliffs watching the battlefield. He thinks it's going to be a wipeout like all the other wars. He's ready to go. The first four days, though, he doesn't give the command to battle. He, when he gets there, he can't believe that these 10,000 men are really going to try to stand up against, what, you know, 250,000, 2.5 million, whatever it was, warriors. So he gives them four days to reconsider. He even offers King Leonidas, the head of the Spartans, hey, if you will just submit to me, I will make you like the ruler of all of Greece. And Leonidas turns him down. He says, my freedom's more important to me than more territory. And so after four days, Xerxes gives up, and he gives a command. That first morning, first morning of battle, he sends 10,000 of his warriors to test the 10,000 Spartans, or the 10,000 allies led by the Spartans. It was vicious fighting. It's hand-to-hand fighting. It's the Spartans are there. They're, they're lined up. They've got their shields, you know, shoulder-to-shoulder, shield-to-shield, several men deep. They've got their eight-foot-long uh, spears, heavy wooden uh, uh, shields. And so when the enemy comes, they hold the line. And in fact, they overpowered the Persians up unbelievably. That when the Persians rushed at them, they held the line and then they began to attack. And with their eight-foot spears in their overhand method, they were able to reach over the smaller shields and the smaller spears of the Persians and they wiped them out. The, the, the battlefield was bloody that day. And there was blood, guts, urine, Inside, it's slippery. It was horrible. But they wiped them out that day. Xerxes couldn't believe it. So the afternoon, he sends a second group of 10,000. These are hand-picked warriors. Now, these are his, some of his elite troops. And once again, they hold them off. And at the start of the second day, Xerxes sends 50,000 of his warriors against them. Same result. Unbelievably, they hold the line. They win the battle that day. Xerxes doesn't know what to do. Three times during that two days, sitting from his throne above, he is so blown away by what's happening, he comes out of his throne. He is just devastated. He's never seen his troops destroyed like this. He's freaking out. He doesn't know what to do. But at the end of the second day, he catches a huge break. There's a traitor, a Greek traitor, not from the army, but just from, from uh, Greek country. His name is Ephialtes, and he comes, and he offers to show him a secret trail. It's like a, an ancient goat trail through the cliffs that would allow his troops to come down and surround them from behind. If only he'll pay a huge reward. The king agrees, and so on day three, King Leonidas wakes up <clears throat> for the battle, and he gets a report that there's been treachery. They've been betrayed. So he knows he only has a short amount of time to deal with this before the Persians arrive and wipe them out. So he calls together the allied troops. He sends most of them home. He says, you guys go home, fight another day. We've lost here. We're gonna w- w-. But he keeps with him. The rest of his 300 Spartans are still alive. Keeps those with him. 700 thespians from the area of thespian Greece, they decide they want to stay too. They're not going to let him fight alone. So less than 1,000 men now, they're going to they're do this final stand. 
But at this point, they're no longer trying to protect the past. They know that that's done. From day one, they knew that they could never win this battle. They knew all they were trying to do is slow down the rapid advance of the Persian army so that it would give the rest of Greece time to either retreat or, or leave or fight another day. So now he knows that that cause is done. They've done the best they can do. And so that day, instead of standing in the pass and holding the pass, he leads them out into battle in the wild, wide area of battlefield where he knows they can do the most damage. According to Herodotus, he says the fighting was vicious that day. The Spartans started off with their spears. and their spears shattered, they went to their short Zixvoi swords. And when they lost those in battle, they went to their fighting with their hands and their teeth. At the end of the day, there was a few Greeks left, the final, the final volley of Persian archers, the arrows. So, so, so thick that when they'd shoot the arrows, it would blot out the sun. One of their commanders of the Spartans earlier, Dionysus, had said, who cares if it blots out the sun? We'll fight in the shade. And that day, there was only a few Greek warriors left. The arrows pierced them, and they all died. After the battle, Xerxes was so angry with these troops that had stood up to him with such valor and destroyed his army that he ordered for the body of King Leonides of Sparta to be, to be retrieved. And when he did, he beheaded him, even though he was dead and full of arrows, crucified him in front of all his troops to see. And so every Greek died that day. It was one of the greatest battles in the history of the world, one of the most important battles in the history of the world. But in a sense, even though every man died that day, in a sense, they rose to a greater resurrection. Because sure enough, they held off the Persians long enough. A couple months later, when the huge Persian fleet came against the Greek fleet at sea, though they were greatly outnumbered, the, Persian, the, 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 uh, the, the Greek fleet struck them down. And, and then later that spring, when the Persians marched on all of Greece, Greece was there to meet them, and though greatly outnumbered, so inspired by the Spartans who'd taken their stand at Thermopylae that they totally trounced the army. They defeated them and decimated them. And it was the beginning of the end for Persia as an empire, and the ideas of freedom and democracy that were just starting in Greece will live to see another day. Well, today we're continuing this series. We're actually finishing it today that we've been in the last four weeks. It's on spiritual warfare. It's called the war, the story behind the story. And as far-fetched as it may seem to the modern mind, uh, as to our, our scientific world, that Jesus in the New Testament is incredibly clear that you and I are caught up in a spiritual war, a battle that goes on behind the scenes that's been going since the beginning of time. That we have an enemy, that he's brilliant, he's strategic, he's powerful, he's out to destroy the human race. And so for the last four weeks, we've been going behind the scenes to learn more about the story of this war, learn more about the, the enemy, learn more about his tactics, what he's up out for, what it takes for us to win in this war. So if you've been here the whole week, you know week one, we looked at the backstory to this battle. How did this war get started? Who are the key players, the history, the plot? What's the, what's the agenda? Then we came back week two, and we talked about the stakes in this battle. We talked about if Satan had his way in your life, what would it look like? When we follow him, what happens to us? The next two weeks, we talked about his strategies. We talked about spiritual warfare at the highest level, the level of ideas. If Satan can control the way a country, a nation, a culture, a person thinks, he can control us. Then we came back last week and talked about temptation, those times in our life where he comes after us trying to convince us to do something we know is wrong in order to self-destruct. 
But today, in, in many ways, we come to the most important message in this series. It's a message about how do you take your stand when that evil day comes, when Satan is after you and he's been strategically after you in your life. It's a day of weakness. It's a day of vulnerability. It's your own personal thermopylae. When the armies of, of evil are coming after you, how do you take your stand? How do you win that war? What does it take? And to get at it today, we're going to go back to a passage that we started this series with. It's back in, it's in Ephesians chapter 6. It's a, it's a passage where more than any place else in the New Testament, it talks about spiritual warfare and what it takes to win. And so let's, let's go open our Bibles and turn there. Ephesians chapter 6, and we'll start at verse 10. Ephesians 6, verse 10. Okay, so the Apostle Paul, he's writing to these new Christ followers, right? They've recently decided to, to follow Jesus. They've moved from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. They've switched sides in this war that's been going on since the beginning of time. He's telling them more about this war that they're in, what they're up against. And he says in verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. In other words, if we're going to win in this spiritual battle, it's not because of us. It's because somehow we tap into God's strength. Verse 11, so put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. So we're in a war. We have an enemy. He's scheming against us. He's out to destroy us. We have to prepare for battle. On the day of battle, when the day of evil comes, when the Persians are charging, it's too late to say, now, where's that shield and I think I had a helmet around here somewhere. And like, well, what do you think we should do? Stand like this, stand like that. How do, we, well, how do we do the spear thing? You know, it's like you have to be prepared. You've got to, when the day of evil comes, you have to be prepared. And that's what he says in the next verse, 13. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. Get ready. So that when the day of evil comes, we've talked about this. Not every day in our spiritual life is created equal. There are some days that are more dangerous than other days. There are certain days when the enemy is coming after us. You're in his crosshairs. What you decide on those days determines your future. He says, so when the day of evil comes in your life, that time when you're vulnerable, when you're, when you're weak, that you may be able to stand your ground like the, like the Spartans did, and after you've done everything, to stand. Okay, so, so the question is, and all right, so... So there's going to be certain times Satan's after us, certain evil days in our life. What does it take to stand on those days? Paul says, well, you've got to put on your armor. You've got to be prepared to put on your armor. Well, what armor, Paul? What are you talking about? And in the next seven verses, the Apostle Paul is going to give us seven pieces of armor, seven pieces of military clothing or weapons that we're to put on. That he says these are critical. Now, before we jump in and look at them, let me say this. That there's not going to be a lot surprising here. In fact, some of you are going to be disappointed. Like, I came to church for that. Really, Mike, is that the best you got? It's like here, Paul says we're up against this army, this, this, we're up against this strategic network of evil, these powers that rule this dark world. He's going to tell us what it takes to beat them, and you're going to be shocked at how so simple it is. It's not complex. It's profound, and yet it's simple. And so he's going to, it's, not, it's not going to be something new. It's not going to be something like, wow, I never heard that before. He's going to say it's the basics that it takes to win this war, which is good news. So let's, what I've done there, if you turn the page, you've got the section, 
It's called Spiritual Warfare, How to Take a Stand. And what I've done is taken these seven pieces of armor or weaponry or clothing, and I've turned them into seven steps that makes it real easy to follow. Here's the seven steps you need to take to take a stand. And we're going to run through them pretty rapidly. Then we're going to come back at the end. We're going to talk, make a couple observations about the seven. And then we're going to do some examination of our life today as we move towards communion of are we ready to take a stand? There's some of you here that you've been coming this series, God's been after you, but you have not yet decided to follow Jesus. You're still on the wrong side of the spiritual war. And the fact is, if you're on the wrong side, you're going to lose. You cannot win against him until you switch sides. I'm going to give you the chance to do that later on today. There's others of us here that we are in this war, we are followers of Jesus, but honestly, we don't have our armor on. We've got five of the pieces, six of the pieces, we don't have seven of the pieces. And so I'm going to give you a chance later at the end of this ser- as we end this series, as we move to communion, to decide whether you want to be a part of this battle or re- whether you're ready to take a stand. So let's jump in. Number one, the first thing Paul says is we need to live the truth. That if we want to win in this spiritual battle, we have to have a deep commitment and passion for the truth in our lives. <clears throat> Now, this makes sense, doesn't it? Because what did we learn last week? One of Satan's greatest strategy is lies. He's the father of lies, right? Remember, we learned that. And so the way that Satan controls your life, my life, this world, he controls it by deception. And so if we're going to win the spiritual battle, it just makes sense that you'd start with the truth. It's the truth that sets us free. So Paul says this in verse 14. Chapter 6, verse 14, his first article of clothing, he says, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. So you got to get ready for this battle, get ready for this war. First thing, first article of clothing, start with the truth. Well, you say, truth about what? Well, it's the truth about who God is, the truth about who you are, the truth about our relationship with God, the truth about how life works. Truth is one of our greatest defenses against the enemy. Now, earlier in this chapter, uh, in this book, the Apostle Paul talked about the importance of truth in our life. So I want you to turn back to the left, just a couple pages, to chapter 4 of Ephesians. Let's see what he says. Okay, chapter 4, we'll look at verse 17. So he says, um, so I tell you this, I insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Okay, you've come to Jesus, now you need to do life a new way. And look how they live. They live in the futility of their thinking. In other words, their whole paradigm, the way they look at life is skewed. You can't think like that anymore. He goes on and he says, they are darkened in their understanding. They don't get it yet. And they're separated from the life of God. They, they can't experience the life God has for them. Why? Because of the ignorance that's in them. Okay, so, so he says, you were once part of that world. You didn't know either. Jesus has called you to follow him. You've stepped out of darkness. You've stepped into light. You need to embrace this new way of thinking if you're going to stand in this battle. Look at verse 20. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and you were taught in him. In accordance with the what that's in Jesus? The truth. 
Okay, so here's before Jesus, you lived in ignorance, you lived in darkness, you lived in futility of thinking. Now, as followers of Jesus, there's truth in Jesus. It's the truth that sets us free, right? That's what we keep coming back to over and over. And so he says in verse 23, or 22, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, your old way of doing things, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. Remember that? The last week, 1 Peter 2, he says, be careful of the deceitful desires which wage war against your soul. I'm going to put those off. And we're to be made new in the attitudes of our minds, a whole new way of thinking, and to put on a new self created to be like God. That's the goal, that we be like him in true righteousness and holiness. So Paul says, okay, first step towards winning this war is you have to be passionate about the truth. Now, here's what I want you to catch. In any area of your life, where you're not passionate, committed to the truth, you leave yourself open for attack. That's what you have to catch. So there's certain things about God that you believe. They're not really untrue. They're not what the Bible teaches. Hey, you leave yourself open. There's certain things about yourself. Often we can be living lives of denial, right? We're not, living, we're not even being honest with ourselves about ourselves, what we're thinking, feeling, why we do what we do. We, we open ourselves up to attack. Uh, we live lives, of, we, if we're not living a life of integrity, tell the truth, keep your commitments, do what you say. We open ourselves up for attack. So we have to be living the truth. That's number one. Step number two. Step number two is that we need to do the right thing. Now this is where you say, and I came to church to hear that. I mean, really, Mike, is this all you've got? This is why I warned you early on, all right? I warned you about this. I said it's going to be simple, right? It's just like, really, Mike, really, I came to have spiritual warfare. Can't you talk about like generational curses or something or <laughs> territorial spirits or casting out demons or I'm sorry. Okay, this is what the Apostle Paul says. We're in a war. We got this enemy. He's strategic. He's brilliant. He's powerful. And he's given us seven steps. And this is what he's got. He says, this is what it's about. Do the right thing. In other words, every time we compromise doing the wrong thing in our life, we leave ourselves open. Now, look what he says. Look what he calls this piece. Chapter 6, still verse 14. So he put on the belt of truth, and then verse, he keeps on going. And he says, with the breastplate of righteousness in place. Okay? So he says, you're going to battle. An ancient battle, one of your most important pieces of armor was your breastplate. Because this is what that protected your chest, your vital organs, your heart. If you don't have some armor there, man, you, you're a sitting duck. You're going down. So Paul says, hey, if you want to win this spiritual battle, don't compromise your righteous. Do the right thing. In fact, earlier in the chapter, or in the previous chapter, in, in verse, uh, chapter 5, I put it there in your note sheet. He says, you were once darkness. Before you came to Jesus, you were in darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. And so live as children of the light. Well, what do you mean, Paul? Well, the fruit of the light consists in three things. It's goodness, it's righteousness, it's truth. And that just covers the first two pieces of armor, right? As we just said, hey, live the truth, do what's good, do what's right. You know, this is the first start. All right, number three. Now, this third one's going to take a little bit more explanation, a little bit harder to understand, but uh, let me just jump in and then it'll come clear. Uh, the third step he says we need to take is we need to remember God's forgiveness, or if you like the word better, accept God's forgiveness. 
Now, this one takes a little bit of backdrop. Um, Earlier in the letter to Ephesians, Paul had talked about the message God had given him to bring, and he calls it the gospel of peace, okay? And so the gospel or the message of peace. So what's the gospel of peace? Well, you and I were once at war with God. We were at war with one another. Jesus has come. He died for us on the cross so that we could have peace with God in the war. We could have peace with one another. He calls that the gospel of peace. That's the gospel of peace, okay? In chapter 2 of Ephesians, you can check it out later. It's on your note sheet. All right. So now in chapter 6, he says, okay, now you, you've put on the belt of truth. You've got the breastplate of righteousness. Done. Good job. Third thing you need to do is you need to take care of your feet. He says, when you go into battle as a Roman soldier, it gets messy. Now, we, you know, modern warfare, you know, messy, but ancient warfare, I'm taught you got blood. And if you ever read history accounts of ancient war, I mean, blood would be running. I mean, like, you'd be knee-deep in blood at times. In these, I mean, it's, it's, it's blood, there's guts, there's urine, because everyone gets so scared, you know. That's a true story. Um, and, and so it is messy. And so Roman soldiers, before they go into battle, they would put on special shoes. They called them boots, but they were really sandals because you see through them like lace-up sort of things. And, and they, on the bottom of their sandals would be these short nails that would be uh, p- pointing down, like hobnails. And the reason was so they wouldn't lose their, fitting, their footing in battle because if you slipped, I mean, you're a goner in battle, right? And so, so it's very important as a Roman soldier, you, you know, you put your right shoes on. And Paul says, hey, you're going into battle. You have to have your right shoes on. Well, what are those shoes? He says, it's the gospel of peace. It's the message of your forgiveness. If you're not clear about your relationship with God and whether he's with you or against you, in the midst of the battle, you're going down. You need to be crystal clear that God is on your side, that you've been forgiven, that there's nothing that you've done that keeps him from fighting for you in this battle. Let's look at how, how Paul puts it. Chapter 6 and verse 15 He says, stand with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Put the gospel of peace on your feet so you're ready to fight. Now, this is so important. We talked last week how one of Satan's biggest strategies in our life is lies. But there's different kinds of lies. There's subcategories of lies. So let's talk about a subcategory of lie that's devastating. It's the lie about guilt. One of Satan's greatest weapons in your life to take you out of the game spiritually is guilt. And the way it works, he comes to you after you failed in an area of your life. It may be a failure from 15 years ago or 20 years ago. You may have had an abortion 20 years ago, and you're still just grieving over that, and you've never got over that, and you just feel like God could never really use you because of that. And we can, it's amazing. And Satan will come and say, and you call yourself a Christian? What kind of Christian would do that? You see? And, and you think God loves you? think he's on your side? Are you kidding me? He doesn't need people like you. And Satan comes to us and he attacks at our point of failure. And he gets us to question our core relationship with God. And if he can get us to question our core relationship, is God for me or against me? Guess what? When we go into battle, we will not stand. And so Paul says, you need to be really clear on this, that when you came to Jesus and you gave your life to Jesus, he forgave you all of your sins, past, present, future. They are covered. 
In fact, what happened when you came to Jesus is there was this whole law book against you. All the things that you've done wrong. You know, the law, here's the law of God. Here's all the things you've broken. He didn't just forgive your sins. He took the whole law book and he threw it out. In fact, he took the law book and he nailed it to the cross. So here's the law, what you're supposed to be. Here's what you're supposed to be. If you broke any one of those things, you're covered. You know, doesn't matter. What, what law was it? Murder? Sexual sin, greed, anger, revenge, what's your sin? Doesn't really matter. If it's in the book, which it is, then you're good. Because the book got nailed to the tree, and any offense against the book is no longer valid. Now, Paul explains this really clearly in Colossians 2, and I put it there in your note sheet. Let's look what he says. He ties our forgiveness to spiritual warfare. In Colossians chapter 2, He says, when you were dead in your sins, so before you came to Jesus, and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, kind of your old life, God made you alive with Christ. He he caused you to be born again. He put his spirit in you. And catch us, he forgave us how many of our sins? All. Let's say it again. How many of our sins? All. Okay, I want you to think of your sin. What's the worst sin you've ever done? The one thing you would never share with anyone else or only with your closest friends you're most ashamed of. I want you to think about it. Got it in your mind? Okay, is it covered in the word all? Amen. It's covered, isn't it? It's covered. I mean, all pretty much covers it, right? So, he forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code, some of the the law, with his regulations that was against us. All these rules that we've broken And it stood opposed to us. He took it away and he nailed it to the cross. He nailed the book to the cross. And look, and then he, having disarmed the powers and authorities, these spiritual powers that are out to destroy us, he made a public spectacle of them. See, they no longer have a basis to come after you and accuse you. They can no longer say, because of this, God will not love you. Because of this, he's not on your side. Because of this, you're on your own in the spiritual battle. Who do you think you are being a Christ follower? You are not. Jesus just disarmed them. They no longer have that right because he took the law and he nailed it to the cross. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you are forgiven, not just past sins, but future sins. You are forgiven. That doesn't mean God's always happy with you any more than you're always happy with your kids. But you love your kids no matter what, don't you? And you're always on their side. And you're always pulling them from them. That's our father, you see? All right. So that's the third thing. We need to get really clear on this forgiveness thing so we don't slip. Okay, number four. Fourth, uh, fourth step was we need to keep the faith. Uh, Paul says a fourth piece of, uh, of weaponry is a shield of faith. Now, in ancient times, uh, one of the great, one of the uh, the, the best weapons, most feared weapons of ancient time was fiery darts or fiery arrows. And so they would, they would dip these darts or dip these arrows in pitch, light them on fire, shoot them in the enemy. They ignite whatever, whatever it comes. You hit your shield. If your shield's out of wood, your shield burns up. Great. You know, it didn't work so, so well. So Roman soldiers, before they go into battle, they would have these huge wooden shields, and they, would cover, they were covered with leather, and they would dip the shield into water before they go to battle, the, the, leather, the, water, the leather part of it. And so when the arrow would come, it would extinguish it. 
And so here's what he's saying. Satan is going to come after you in your life. On the evil day, he's going to come after you. We've talked about how he comes, out. he comes after you with lies. We talked about a subcategory of lies, guilt. Let's talk about another subcategory of lies. You ready? Doubt. One of Satan's greatest weapons is doubt. It's been this way since the beginning of time. The Garden of Eden, remember the story. Satan comes up. Hey, Eve, what are God's guidelines for the garden? He says, well, you know, it's great. We can eat whatever we want. And all just one tree we can't eat. And if we eat it, we'll die. Oh, you won't die? You're not going to die. No, that's not the truth. The truth is, is that life will get better. In fact, you'll be like God. See, God's not looking out for you. God's trying to hold you down. He's trying to restrict you, not trying to protect you. Satan will always try to get us to doubt that God knows and that God cares and that God loves you. Always, from the beginning of time. And so when the evil day of come, battle comes, this is what he's going to attack. God loves you. He knows. He's powerful. He's caring. He keeps his promises. So Paul says, in the midst of spiritual battle, you need to learn to hold on to what God has told you. What he's told you through your word, what he's told you through the Holy Spirit, what he's told you through your friends and wise counsel. You need to learn to hold on to what God has said and, and hold on, that's because that's your shield, you see? All right. Number five. The fifth piece of armor is our first, fifth step is we need to focus on the future. Now, this one needs a little bit more explanation. Um, he says that what we need to put on our heads is the helmet of salvation. The, the thing is, like, what do you mean, Paul, the helmet of salvation? Salvation is one of those words in the New Testament that has a wide variety of meanings. It can be referred to the past, like he saved us in the past. It can refer to the present, like we're being saved. Or it can refer to the future when Jesus comes back again and our salvation is complete. And so um, that, like, we will be saved when he comes back. And the New Testament uses it all three ways. But Paul particularly likes to use it in that third way. In fact, he often talks about the hope of our salvation. That yes, we're saved, we're followers of Jesus, we're children of God, we have the Holy Spirit as first fruits of our inheritance, but we're all, it's all about the future. It's all about when Jesus comes back. That's when we're getting the full load. We got a down payment right now. We're getting the full, the full, full deal when he comes back. And so what Paul is saying here, in fact, he uses this phrase uh, in another passage there in your note sheet, 1 Thessalonians 5, another passage on spiritual warfare. He says, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. So twice, both in Ephesians 6 and here in 1 Thessalonians 5, he says we need to put on the helmet of salvation, but he, he specifies what he's talking about here, the hope of salvation. In other words, if you want to win against Satan in your life, you have to develop a long-range view of reality. Shorten, uh, Satan's uh, strategy in your life is to always get you to think of here and now. If he can get you focused on here and now as if this life is all there is, he will win the battle. The truth of the matter is this life is just the beginning of the next life. This life, as we often say here, is the lobby into eternity. This life is just the beginning of real life. This life is all about the next life. This is a whole New Testament view. This life is short. And if you're going to make it spiritually, you have to always keep that in perspective. 
Because the moment you start buying into Satan's lie that's all about here and now, you become vulnerable, especially during hard times in your life and especially during times of persecution. I mean, if you're a believer in Iraq today and you're following Jesus, why are you going to do that if there's no eternity, right? when, When the persecution starts coming, it becomes all about the future, It's the hope of your salvation that Jesus is bringing. And you're willing to suffer now because it's all about then. So so the Apostle Paul says, put on the head the hope of your salvation. Stay clear on where we're going. Focus on the future. Number six. The sixth step is to hold on to the word. His six, uh, his weapon, he calls the sword of the spirit. Let's look at this. So in verse 16, he's told this to take up the shield of faith with which we extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. So we looked at that, right? Verse 17, take the helmet of salvation. We've talked about that. Now let's look at the next one. And the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Satan says, when, or God says, when you're, when you're, uh, when your evil day comes and Satan is on the attack and the Persians are rushing you in your life, okay? when that day comes, when Satan comes with his lies and Satan comes with his guilt and Satan comes with his doubt, you need a weapon to fight him off. And that weapon is God's word. And catch this, it's the sword of the spirit. In other words, at your worst times, Don't be surprised when the Spirit takes the word and he says, hey, Mike, catch this one. Got it. I'm ready to go. Uh, Example, Jesus, baptized, Spirit comes upon him, goes in the wilderness, 40 days, right, fighting the battle, Uh, 40 days of temptation. Last day, Satan comes, grand finale, three final temptations. Stories in Matthew 4, if you want to check it out. We're not going to check it out now. Um, and so Satan comes, fight three final temptations. What does Jesus do? He doesn't argue with Satan. He doesn't debate Satan. He just, every t- with every temptation, he quotes the word, a quotation from the book of Deuteronomy. Now, Jesus had studied the word. He knew the word really well. But here's what I think was going on, is in that moment of weakness, it was his evil day. 40 days of fasting, 40 days of war, it was his evil day. And I think the Holy Spirit says, Jesus, here you go. Got it. Deuteronomy. Man does not live by bread alone. Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy says, do not tempt the Lord your God. Oh, Deuteronomy. It's the Lord and him only that you will serve and worship. And he wins the battle. Men and women, this is why it's so important for us to be knee deep in the word in our life. It's why it's important that you're here Every week as we're studying the word together. It's why it's important you're in a life group where you're studying the word together. It's why it's important that you're reading the Bible on your own and you're memorizing key passages that fit for your particular temptation and attack. What's your temptation? Is it doubt? Is it despair? Is it discouragement? What does the word say? Memorize that word so you have something there. Because if we've learned the word like Jesus had, what happens, our time of need, the spirit can throw us a sword and we are ready for the attack and we can defend ourselves. Great story. Chuck Swindoll tells on himself. You know, Chuck was, uh, Chuck's a great uh, pastor, speaker, uh, president of a, a seminary. 
So one day, he, he says he's out speaking, you know, nationally. He's in a far-off town, away from home. He's exhausted. He's been speaking all day, tired out, wishes he was home, homesick. He comes back to his hotel, beautiful, posh, high-rise. He gets on. As he gets on, these two beautiful, attractive, dressed-to-kill women come on with them. Just the three of them now. The elevator door is closed. He pushes door number five, uh, uh, floor number five. One of the women smiles at him, reaches over. She pushes number five. He realizes what's on. He is feeling so weak. He's feeling so tired. He's feeling so vulnerable. He said he closed his eyes, and as he did, it says if God wrote, he said he could see as like a black screen with white letters on the back of his eyelids. Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. A man will reap what he sows. So the elevator door opened on the fifth floor. He ran to his room. Slammed the door closed, locked, put the deadbolt on. It was his day of evil. The Persians were coming. And what happened? The spirit, here you go, Chuck. Here's what you need. I got it. Okay? Number seven. Number seven. Now, at this point, Paul seems to run out of ideas for armor. (laughs) It's a bad day, lack of creativity, whatever. And he's like, well, whatever, let me just give you the seventh one, seventh step in spiritual warfare. I won't even give it a name, but it's clearly part of the passage. And it goes like this. Seventh step is pray for protection. When he says one of the greatest weapons we have is prayer. So look what he says in chapter 6 and verse 18. So we picked up verse 17, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and now we're in verse 18. I'm praying the Spirit on all occasions all kinds of prayers and requests. And with this in mind, be alert and keep on praying for all the saints. Saints, just a New Testament word for Christ's followers. Okay, so I want you to notice three things what he says about prayer here. Number one, he says this is to be a lifestyle. And notice what he says, we are to be praying. Notice all the all words in here. Praying the Spirit on all occasions, all kinds of prayers. Last sentence, with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for the saints. Often we think of prayer as something we do in a jam. And that's good. We should pray in a jam. But what Paul is saying is that prayer should be part of your lifestyle of spiritual warfare. You're praying all times, all kinds of prayers, always praying. You see? It's one of our most powerful weapons. Second thing I want you to notice. He says we're to pray in the Spirit. In other words, that prayer is not one-way communication where I'm just talking with God. Prayer is two-way communication where I'm listening for God. God, what are you putting in my heart to pray for? Who do I need to be praying for? The third thing I want you to notice is that we're to pray for each other's protection. Notice what he says last. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. He says, he's just told, hey, we're in a war. We've got an enemy, so be alert and always watch each other's back. That's what he's saying. Be praying for one another. You need to be watching. I need to be praying for you. You need to be praying for me. You need to be praying for each other in your life group, not just in your life group, but throughout the week. If you're married, you need to be praying for your spouse. If you have kids, you need to be praying for your kids. If you've got grandkids, you need to be praying for your grandkids. 
We need to be praying for this church. We need to be praying for our country. He says there's a war going on. It's all times, all kinds of requests, always watching out, and we're looking out for one another. A couple weeks ago, uh, my wife Lynn was up really late, which is her, her uh, normal mode. And uh, so she goes to bed about 1.32 or whatever. And so one night, she's up late, and uh, all of a sudden, God just puts a friend of ours on her heart to pray for her. She doesn't know what's going on. But it just really feels it strong, so she begins to pray. She begins to pray, I don't know, 15 minutes. How long did you pray, Lynn? You don't know? Okay, I'll make it up. Okay, she's, so she's, she's praying like 15 minutes, half an hour. Is that about right? Okay, that's about right. All right. So I just know, Lynn, how this works. So anyway, so, so she's just praying for this person. And the longer she's praying, she's feeling more, um, like more burden and more burden. And so she just keeps on praying. She doesn't know what's going on. Finally, she's just so tired of it. She says, I don't care if it's late. I'm picking up the phone. She picks up the phone. She calls this person. How are you doing? Well, it turns out the person's in a place of temptation. It was a place of, it was an evil day in that person's life. You see? So what's happening is she's praying in the Spirit. You see, God's, the Spirit says, I got, I got this, a prayer assignment for you. You need to be watching out. You've got a sister who's in need, and you need to reach out, and you need to cover her in prayer. You see? Paul says that's your seven. Now, okay, so we've got so we seven steps, right? Seven pieces of armor. Now let's go on to the last page and make a couple final observations, a couple things to notice. Number one, I want you to notice how simple these steps are. Now, I, I mentioned this at the beginning because I thought you'd shoot me for being so boring. So I mentioned up front how simple, but I want to come back to it. I want you to notice how simple these steps are. I mean, is there anything surprising on here? I mean, hey, what's he say? Live in the truth. Uh, do the right thing. Uh, keep trusting God. Focus on the future. Hey, be in the Word. Pray. I mean, is there anything surprising there? Here's what I want you to catch. The key to spiritual warfare is simply following Jesus. Okay? This is the key. It's not, a mis- it's not mystery. He is t- this is the most powerful and profound passage on spiritual warfare in all the Bible. He's told us we're up against this enemy, the principalities, the powers, the rulers, the authorities of this dark world. That's the setting, right? He's telling us, here's what you need to win. If there's any place in the Bible, the Apostle Paul's going to tell us, this is what it takes to win. I mean, this is it. And it's so simple. He says, all you have to do is just do the Jesus stuff that I've been teaching you all through this book. Hey, just follow the truth. Do the right thing. Trust in your forgiveness. It's just simple stuff. Just do, but do this and you will win. Now, I want you to notice what's missing. Often the things, if we go to a Christian bookstore and you pick up a book on spiritual warfare, it's often missing from this list, isn't it? Some of the stuff that's out there, and I'm not going to say it's all bad or whatever, but often the key is, oh, uncovering your generational sins in your past. That's the key. Oh, the key is praying over the territorial spirits in this area. Well, the key is, hey, if there was ever a time and place to mention it, this would be the place, right? Yeah, the Apostle Paul says, no, it's just the basics. But here's what I want you to catch. These seven steps may be basic, but they are non-negotiables. And that leads to the second observation that I want to make about these seven is that 
In fact, let's look at look what he says about this. And let's take your Bibles and look at Ephesians 6.11. I want you to notice what he says twice in this passage. 6.11. He says, you need to put on the what armor? Full armor. Okay, underline that. Full armor. Okay, let's go to verse 13. Therefore, put on the what armor? Full armor of God. So you can take your stand. You see what he's saying here? This armor may be simple, but you cannot neglect a single piece. You can't pick, okay, I like number one, two, three, four, and six. Not so big on five and seven. Do you have like a smaller packet of armor? Because I'm a little short today. And so I don't want to buy the whole packet. You know, seven pieces, that's a lot of stuff to carry. I'm just, how about a four pack? You know, I got a four pack? No, no, you, you can't do that. But this is what we do, isn't it? You've got the men and women who love the word. Man, we're deep in the word. We, we, we kind of study the word. Great. Well, that's great. You love the word. So you've got the, you got the sword. That's awesome. But number two says breastplate of righteousness. You need to do the right thing. Are you doing the right thing? Or are you just trying to learn the word? You know? Well, that's really great. You've got this whole thing about your forgiveness down. You're trusting Jesus. For, you get that you're clear on that. Not struggling a lot with guilt. That's great. How about this prayer piece? How's that going in your life? You see? And so they're simple, and yet we need all seven, because if we don't, it's at the point of our weakness, the enemy will strike, you see? So here's my question for you. Here's my question. As we start to wrap this thing up, we've been in this, what, now four weeks now, five weeks now, and so all this is the hugest waste of time if we don't pick up our armor, right? We've been learning. We've learned about the enemy. We've learned about his strategy, his techniques, but now the question is, you have your armor. So let me talk to you. Some of you here, like I mentioned, you're not yet Christ followers. You're on the wrong team. It's impossible for you to win if you're not on the right team. You have to have Jesus fighting with you. You cannot beat Satan on your own. How about for those of us here, how are we doing? Do we have our armor on? Or as we look at this today, you honestly say, Mike, man, this is great stuff. I, okay, I got the seven things. I'm, I really am. I'm doing great in five of them. These two I'm just really neglecting. And I want to I be prepared for the battle. You see, where is it? And we started the day with a story of this stand at Thermopylae. It's a great story, isn't it? Uh, it's one of my favorite stories, ancient history. First time I read the story, um, having lunch with a guy who recommended a book about the Spartans, the way they trained in the stand at Thermopylae. It was a historical novel, but well-researched and it's called The Gates of Fire, and I got the book, devoured the book, read it a couple times. And then a year later or so, I'd always wanted to read the writings of Herodotus, and so read all the writings of Herodotus. And it's, he gets a little bit, you get a little bit about this battle in there as well, you know. And so last year, when the movie, I heard the rumor come out that there was a new movie coming out, and it was all about Thermopylae and all about the Spartans and the 300 and so on. I'm like, oh, man, I'm all over that. I just, I, I hear about it months in advance. So my son-in-law, I could see a special showing up six months. I was so jealous. And, and so it's, now the movie's finally coming. And I heard it was a little, you know, he told me it's a little, uh, it's a little shake, you know, shady in some areas, and, and it's real violent. And I'm like, yeah, I know, okay. But I, I just really want to see this thing because I want to see this stand. I, I want to see that scene where the Persians make that first assault. I want to see the Spartans lined up, shoulder to shoulder, shield to shield, back to shield, several rows deep. I want to see that hit. I want to see that threat. I want to see what happens. I want to see it on the big screen. 
So the day comes, and I go to the theater, and it comes to that part of the movie, and I'm all over it. I'm on the edge of my seat. I'll be there. Here it comes. Here it's coming. I've been reading about this for years. Here it comes. And sure enough, the, the Persians are over there, and they're dressed in black, of course. And, uh, and there's just massive hordes of Persians. And then you've got over here the small group of, of Spartans dressed in their red capes and their gold shields in front of this, the, the gates, the hot gates there at Thermopylae. And so we're watching, and all of a sudden the Spartan commander comes out in his black horse, and he issues a command to lay down their arms, and a, a spear comes out of the sky, boom, kills them. And, and they said, come and get them. And then all of a sudden all hell breaks loose, and the Persians are just, they're just racing, and it's full speed and slow motion. You're there, and you're in the theater. That you're, you're just watching for this collapse, for this wave, this wave of warriors going to hit the Spartans. Can they take a stand? Will they stand? Will they be able to stand? And all of a sudden it comes, and this clash hits, and... This power is there, and you're just watching as a Spartan, shoulder to shoulder, and the Leonidas, King Leonidas, is calling out to his men, hold the line, hold the line, hold the line, and will they stand? And the, it's such a powerful impact, it's pushing their whole line back, and all of a sudden the camera switches, and you're back behind them now, and you see their muscles of, the, of their legs, just, it's just bulging out, and they, their, their sandals are digging rivets in the, in the soil, and it's just like going deep, and it's pushing this whole thing, but they hold the line. They take everything the enemy can throw at them, but they hold the line. And then it all goes dead quiet. And all of a sudden, with their eight-foot spears, they go on the attack, and they begin overwhelming the Persians. They held the day. They stood the test. And as I'm sitting there in the theater watching this thing, all I can hear is the words of the Apostle Paul going through my mind, they put on the full armor of God. So when the day of evil comes, having taken your stand and having done everything, you will stand. And they went on at that point. They went on the attack. That was the first battle I told you about earlier where thousands of Persians were killed and only two or three Spartans. They switched from the defense to the offense. It was amazing. I love this scene. It's just blazing in my mind. In fact, I went back a week later just for that scene. I don't care about the movie. I just want that scene. Give me those two minutes. Here's my 10 bucks. Give me those two minutes. <laughs> Man, I wish you could see it. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the rulers. It's against the authorities. Against the powers of this dark world the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. Therefore, put on your full armor so when your day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and having done everything, that you'll stand. Father, we come at the end of this series. God, it all leads to this day. Are we ready as a church to take a stand are we ready as followers of you to take our stand? Are we ready to put on our armor and become a force for your kingdom? God, we pray at the beginning of the series that you would develop in us the heart of a warrior. You've been doing that. Today's a day where we decide whether we take a stand. We pray you'd come with us now, be with us right now. As we're here, I want to talk to those of you who have not yet made a decision to follow Jesus. You're on the wrong side of this war. You know it. God's calling you. He's inviting you to join him. Switch sides. 
You can do that today. It's a simple decision, profound but simple. All you do is ask Jesus to come in and take over your life and to forgive you, to change you from the inside out, to put his spirit in you, and to teach you how to follow him. And if you want to make that decision, you can make it today. In a few minutes, we're going to be coming to communion. And as you come, you can just ask Jesus into your life, and he will hear you, and he will come in. And if you're already a Christ follower here, and today you've recognized, man, there's, I've got four of the seven, I've got five of the seven, but I'm not fully armed, I'm vulnerable. And today I want to pick up that armor, I want to put on the, the clothing, whatever it is. Here's a great chance for you today. I'm asking you to put on your armor today. I'm asking you as your leader to put on your armor. Let's go to battle. You don't have five pieces or six pieces. Put them all on. Live the truth. Do the right thing. Accept your forgiveness. Hold on to your faith. Focus on the future. Take up the sword of the word. Be a man or woman of prayer for your brothers and your sisters. And like I say, in a few minutes, we're going to be taking communion. And, and for you, I would, I would ask that, that today, as you come to the communion table, that you would come and you would just let Jesus know if you've not been doing this and ask him to forgive you and accept that forgiveness and then make your commitment today to be a seven-armor person, seven-piece-of-armor person. Wow, what a fall it's been. God has had us on a journey, hasn't he? And through the marriage matrix, we've gone through the war I'm really excited about the next stages as we go in the next year. Next week, we're going to have a standalone message on this movement thing we're talking about. What does it mean to be a movement? And, and then on Christmas weekend, our services, uh, several of you have said to me, man, I wish we could continue this series on the war. It's a little bit longer, and we're kind of going to do that. Um, on Christmas weekend, and I've often said, in fact, at the beginning of the series, I mentioned that Christmas was really more about an invasion. You know, it's, it's more like D-Day than it is like Silent Night. And, uh, and so it's, Christmas is about the coming of the hero, the promised hero, the one that God spoke to Eve in the garden and said, one day you're going to have a little boy who's going to crush the Satan's head. And we're going to study the backstory to Christmas. We're going to trace the ancient promises all the way through this cosmic takeover, all the promises that started with, with Eve and then went to Abraham and then went to Judah and then went to David then went to Isaiah. We're going to study the story. And then on the uh, New Year's Day, or New Year's services rather, we're going, to, we're going to talk about what are the lessons that God has taught us in 2007 that we need to hold on to if we're going to succeed and move into the future he's got for us in 2008. We're going to talk about moving forward by looking back. And then we're going to start January with a four-week series called Priority One, putting the first thing first. We're going to spend a month talking about what does it look like to make God priority one in our life? And to get at it, we're going to be studying the ancient prophecies of a man named Haggai, probably a series you've never heard on Haggai, so I'm looking forward to that. May the Lord bless you, and may he be your rock. As David said, by the Lord's strength, I can run upon the wall, and with God's help, I can bend the bow. And with the Lord's help, I can be like a deer on the mountainside, ascending the mountain. And with the Lord's help, I can win in battle. And God is my refuge, and he is my strength, and he is my deliverer. And may this week 
May you bend the bow in this, great, in this great war we're in by the strength of his spirit. May you experience him as your deliverer, as your fortress as we move into this Christmas season to celebrate the coming of the hero. God bless you. We'll see you soon. Well, that's going to do it for this week's message. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have putting it together. Please visit us at rockypeak.org where you can download more messages or have your questions answered. Remember, you can subscribe to our weekly podcast for free by searching for The Church at Rocky Peak from within the music store in your iTunes software. For Lead Pastor Mike Yearly and everybody up here at The Peak, thanks for listening. <laughs>